0: The history of bunyoro Chitara is made up of three dynasties. The Batembozi, whom I've talked about for the past two episodes, the Bacchuezi, and the Babito dynasty. These three are considered to be separate and different groups of rulers from each other, which is interesting considering that Bunyoro court tradition tells us that all kings descend from one long patrilineal line, all the way back to Kakama. But given that that's not the case, considering that we have three separate groups— How do you merge them together? If you are a Game of Thrones fan, and you've completed the series, if you haven't, spoiler warning, there was a scene at the end where all heads of the seven houses had gathered, and they ended up picking Bran as the next king. Now, I didn't like this choice. In fact, most of us didn't like this choice. Bran is like my Bran Flakes. They're only interesting when they have ravens, I mean raisins in them. That's a little Game of Thrones joke for you. Did I mention I like corny jokes? Yeah, I was pretty proud of that one too. The point here is what Tyrion says about picking someone with the right story to be king. For the Manoro, it wasn't just about the right story, but also one that lined up with theirs. You see, according to John Beatty, most times stories were changed to fit the main narrative, thereby giving the specific group a mandate to rule. And this is exactly what the Patresi did, because it is from this group that the banura drew a huge part of their national pride, because for the first time in their history, they became an empire. Welcome back, everyone, to the third episode of the Those Who Came Before Us podcast. I'm the host, David Ibanda, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about the Bachwesi. There's a lot to discuss here, so much so that I've broken it up into two episodes. The first tells the story from the perspective of Bunyoro oral history, and during the second episode, we'll talk about the Bachwesi under the microscope of historical analysis. So, with that, let's begin. We left off last episode with Isaza being trapped in the underworld. If you remember, Isaza shouted back to his gatekeeper Bukuku and instructed him to take care of his kingdom until he came back. Bukuku did as he was told and awaited his king's return. But we all know he never did, seeing as he was serving a life imprisonment sentence in the underworld, payment for his botched attempt to trick the underworld king, Nyamuyonga. But after waiting for a while, it occurred to Bukuku that perhaps... He didn't have to wait. That perhaps he could become the king. It was his time to shine. Bukuku seized the crown and announced his new position. But because of Bukuku's status as a muiru, a commoner, the chiefs were not happy about this. If you remember from two episodes ago, only descendants of Kakama could become king. Him as a king was a non-starter. The chiefs mobilized and tried their best to remove him. But he managed to repel the attacks and in the end only succeeded in ruling a fractured kingdom. Bukuku soon gained a reputation for being a horrid king on top of his illegitimacy. And it is then that he received a prophecy from his diviners about the fate of his rule. You see, Bukuku had a beautiful daughter named Yinomiru. The diviners told him that a daughter as beautiful as she was, was destined to bring him misfortune. fortune. Her child will bring you disaster. Kill her, they said. If you don't, you cannot blame us for what happens next. But such a decision was something that he could not consider. It was too much of a price to pay for the insurance of his rule. Bukuku instead decided to mutilate his daughter Ninomiru by gouging out one of her eyes and cutting off one of her breasts. A horrifying act, but with this, he was convinced that it would deter any man from having an interest in her. Furthermore, He constructed a palace that would act as her prison. The only way to get to her would be through his own house. By doing this, Bukuku believed that he had circumvented the prophecy. But do you guys think it worked? You know how these stories go. Attempts to cheat destiny always result in the fulfillment of the prophecy. Now remember that Isaza had a son born to him by Nyamata. The boy's name was Asimba. And he grew up in the underworld, hearing from his father about the good old days when he was king. You can imagine his little eyes opening wide with wonder as his father narrated his stories. The boy wanted to see this place that his father spoke of. When he was old enough, he married and had a son named Chomia. He then decided to leave the underworld with his family and drop them off at a location in northern Uganda, and then proceeded to Bukuku's palace. Now, tradition tells us that he traveled with a group of white people like himself who were his followers. I promise, I'll explain this in the second episode. But for now, let's get back to the story. When he arrived, Isimba introduced himself as a hunter instead of giving his real identity. He was afraid that he might not be received well due to being the son of the previous king. He offered gifts such as beads and some other unspecified items. It was at this meeting that the maid of Nyanamiru, Mugizi, saw him and told her master. She apparently talked about how handsome he was and that he seemed somewhat wealthy. Curious, Nyanamiru asked her to pass on a message. It was an invitation to meet. Given that Nyanamiru was imprisoned, they had to rely on Mugizi the maid to communicate. And thus began a forbidden romance between these two. Isimboa was able to sneak into the palace prison by using a ladder to get over the wall, clearly undeterred by the horrors her father had done in order to make her ugly. The story goes that he stayed there for three months and got her pregnant, but Isimbo couldn't stay there any longer. Sooner or later, her father was bound to find out. Yinamuru you know, begged him to stay, afraid to be left alone. After all, the only person she had to talk to was the maid and maybe her father from time to time. But unfortunately, Isimwa had to leave. But he did promise to come back one day. Six months later, she gave birth to a baby boy, and Bukuku was shocked. How on earth did she get the child? He shouted. He ordered for the boy to be killed, but his diviner stopped him saying that his smell teeth hadn't even set in. At least wait. Bukuku listened and offered a stay of execution. A small consolation for the aggrieved mother. True to his word, the baby was tossed in the river when his milk teeth set in. But the gods smiled upon the child. The charms it wore got caught in some bushes around the bend of the river. A potter who happened to be close by heard the infant's cries, and upon laying eyes on the child, knew exactly who it belonged to. Secretly, he went to Nyunawir and told her he had her son. She was filled with joy to hear this and gave him two cows as a reward. She also asked that he raise him as his own. The boy was named Ndahura Karubumbi, which means the son of a potter. And according to Winyara court tradition, he would become the first king of the Patrezi dynasty. Ndahura is described as a man who feared nothing, a conqueror who created the empire of Chitara, His fearlessness showed even in his youth. As a young man, he openly defied the king by having his cows drink the salty water for the king's cows. Such an act got him into arguments with the king's herdsmen. They eventually complained to Bukuku, saying that this boy was a pest. To which the king responded, The next time I see him, I will beat him. So one day, Bukuku came to see for himself the antics of the potter's son. And just like he'd done before, Nahura brought his cows to drink at the same time that the king's cows were drinking. Bukuku couldn't believe the gall of this young man. Does he not know who I am? In rage, Bukuku forgot about the beating that he had promised him and decided instead to kill him right there and then. He picked up a spear and hurled it at in Nahura. He missed, and Nahura dashed for the spear and threw it right back at him, hitting him square in the chest. Bukuku staggered back, blood coming out of his chest. He fell to the ground and died. And Dauhara then walked up to his grandfather's stool, sat on it, and proclaimed himself king. And thus, the prophecy was fulfilled. When Yenomuru heard the news, she said, The ears cannot refuse to hear. I have heard both bad news and good news. This, she said, referring to the death of her father in her reunification with her son. At first, some people didn't take to Indahura. As far as they were concerned, his claim was illegitimate. Not even the words of his mother were good enough. So seeking to secure his throne, Indahura went to war. His first order of business was to rein in the chiefs who had refused Bukuku's rule. One of them was the chief in Singa of Bugoma, a county in Bunyoro. When he heard that the young king was coming for him, he attempted to use sorcery to stop him dead in his tracks. This failed, and Indahura raided his lands and seized him. "'I had you are trying to bewitch me,' Indahura said. The young king took Nsinga's crown, which was made of red parrot feathers, and placed it on his head. He then dragged him to the top of the cliff and kicked him off, this is Sparta-style. Nsinga drowned in the waters below. According to Nyakatura, Indahura dethroned him and made him the mock king with a crown made of leaves.' To briefly explain what a Mock King is, in the past, whenever a king ascended to the throne, he had to pick someone to be the Mock King. The purpose of this was for them to absorb the evil that was intended for the real king. The Mock King would then be treated like an actual king, and after nine days, would be executed. To make matters even worse, a lot of times, the Mock King was picked from the king's brothers. However, this is negated by Bunyora historian in Samba who tells us that this is what people believed happened, but not what actually happened. The reason being that this was a ploy to deter the other classes from getting any funny ideas about taking the crown for themselves. In fact, the Bunyora used to say that the king kills his associates, meaning those in the ruling class. And it seemed to work, as far as we know. Anyways, Isimba heard of his son's exploits and went to see him. Tradition tells us that people were able to see that Ndahura indeed looked like Isimba as opposed to the para that raised him. And this ended all the questions about the legitimacy of Ndahura. However, it brings up another question How did the people validate Isimba's claim as the son of Isaza? Hmm. We'll talk about that in the next episode. Ndahura continued his campaigns for years, bringing almost the whole of present day Uganda, Western Kenya, Northern Tanzania, Rwanda, Burundi, and Eastern Congo under the fold of the Chitara Empire. These wars were won with the help of the Alabatrezi, And for their efforts, he gave them land. Now, there were some downsides to this expansion. Court tradition says that his armies brought back diseases from these faraway lands. The most serious of them being smallpox. After his successful campaigns, Ndahura was content for a while. That is, until he grew restless. The mundane day-to-day of regal life was boring. He was a conqueror, a warrior. He craved the sweet aroma of battle. And so it's said that Ndahura decided to go after an enemy in present-day Tanzania. His name was King Wirewatakya. But the king was prepared because during the battle, this man used sorcery to cause darkness to fall at Ndahura's army. Panic set in as the confused soldiers tried to get away. Many of them were slaughtered in the process. And Ndahura himself ended up being captured. People then began to spread the rumor that he had been swallowed by the earth. And indeed, other versions of the story say that he was. However, in this case, Ndahura was rescued by his brother Chomya. This whole episode destroyed his ego. The once fearless conqueror was too ashamed to face his subjects. He snuck back into his kingdom in the cover of night, sad, dejected, humiliated. His people were excited to see him and wanted him back as king, but N'Dahura couldn't. He refused and told them to pick an heir from among his children. Soon after, he left and roamed the empire, until he eventually vanished. (laughs) During the time when Ndahura was captured, a man called Mulindwa was chosen to act as regent in the interim. When Indahura was rescued and didn't want his throne back, the Patresi deliberated and eventually chose Wamara, the eldest son of Ndahura, as their leader. Now among the people in the running to be king was a man called Mgeni. When Wamara was chosen, the mother of Mugeni, Nyangoma, was furious. She strongly believed that her son was the better choice. Unfortunately for him, the others didn't even consider him. Ouch. And for this, she blamed Mulindwa. Let me give you guys a little backstory on who her son Mugenyi was. If you thought Isaza loved his cows, <laughs> Mugenyi was on a whole other level. This man had a massively unhealthy relationship with these creatures. He loved his cows so much that he swore, no. He vowed he would end anyone who killed his favorite cow. And in the event that that cow died a natural death, right then and there, he was going to kill himself. Funny enough, the cow ended up dying by his own hand. He took it to drink some salt water, and it just kicked the bucket. Oh, my cow! What happened?! (laughs) <laughs> my cow... Yeah, the poor man was distraught. True to his word, Mugeni tried to kill himself, but his fellow Atrezi intervened by presenting him with more beautiful cows, and the cycle would start again. From the way the story goes, it seems his fellow Atrezi would have to watch him constantly to ensure he didn't off himself. Now with what I've just told you, would this man be your pick to be king? Certainly not mine, and it seems the other you concurred, but not his mother. Oh, she did not take this well. The irony of all of this was the fact that Nyangoma was Mulindwa's stepmother. She was one of the wives of Isimwa, and even weirder was the fact that Mulindwa was in love with his stepmother, Nyangoma. <laughs> Drama! But he couldn't marry her because she was his dad's wife. Of course, anything like that was unbecoming. But Mulindwa couldn't help himself because he made his feelings known. And his stepmother, Nyangoma, decided to fulfill the innermost desires of his heart. You know what I mean. If you could only see my eyebrows right now, I'm raising them in a not-so-subtle way to indicate the underlying erotic tones of this moment. In any case, she's described as a very attractive woman, and he, a man with a weakness for attractive women. So Nyangoma tells him to stop by her house in the evening. Malindwa probably took a shower, he dressed up nice, he smelled good, walked with a pep in his step, flowers in hand. Fellas, you know what it's like. This was the night he had been waiting for. Nyangoma let him in and motioned for him to sit on the stool on top of the animal's skin rug. Melindo did so, and in the blink of an eye, found himself plummeting into a pit of scalding hot water. Ah! A blood-curdling scream ripped through the air, and Yangoma grabbed a rug and covered the hole in order to suffocate his screams. The plan had failed. Soon, the neighbors had gathered outside her hut wondering what is going on. Melindwa had also come with a servant who rushed off and told his fellow Batrezi about what had just happened. Kagoro, one of the Batrezi and his stepbrother, arrived on the scene and began killing all those around, assuming that they were guilty of this attack on his stepbrother that he had just been made aware of. Kagoro grabbed the maid of Nyangoma and she pleaded with him to spare her life and those of the others. She told him, it wasn't us, it, it was Nyangoma. Kagoro stopped and released her. He went into the hut and saw the badly scalded Mulino in the pit. There standing on the side were Nyangoma and two of her sisters. He executed all of them right there. In his eyes, they were guilty by association. In fact, he started to believe that the whole clan was guilty by association. Kagoro wanted to annihilate the entire Wasingo clan, which was the clan of Mugini's mother Nyangoma. This would serve as a warning to anyone who ever dared to assassinate Ibuch took his father Chomi, telling him that he shouldn't do it, because they gave birth to Mgeni. This advice, tradition tells us, prevailed. The Batrezi are portrayed as larger-than-life characters. Kagoro here, who wanted to wipe out an entire clan, has an interesting legend. According to his legend, Kagoro wasn't born like normal people. One night, as lightning flashed through the sky, a being made of lightning appeared and threw its spear also made of lightning to earth. And there he was, kneeling, like the Terminator. I'm just kidding. But he came to be known as the Fire of the Night after this. It's also said that Kagora possessed a powerful spear thrust. And one time, the Petrezi faced an invasion from Burundi by a man named Misinga. This man managed to advance with such a huge army that he challenged three Batrezi, who all lost. When the news reached Kagoro, he managed to track Misinga and found him by a well. Now, personally, I would have gone with a sneak attack, but not Kagoro. He challenges him to a one-on-one fight. Pick up your spear. I want to see how well you can fight. The two men go at it. It appears that Misinga has the upper hand because he manages to spear him twice. His aunt, who was on the sideline, gets frustrated with her nephew. How does one spear a man twice and not kill him? She says. I feel like she was asking the wrong question. The better question was, what kind of a man gets speared twice and keeps on fighting? They had clearly underestimated the tenacity of a man they call Kagoro, the fire of the night. With one well-placed spear thrust, Kagoro ends Misinga right there in front of his aunt, and he then goes on to lead an army against the remaining soldiers of Misinga. Kagoro's father, Chomya, the one who stopped him from massacring the Wasingo clan, also has some tales told about him. I was able to find one that was recorded by Lukin Williams in his article about Nkore folklore. Nkore is one of the kingdoms close to Banyaru. And in this story, it's said that Chomio was a great trader, and that he bought the sun, moon, and the stars. The moon specifically, he had to remove from a cave himself and threw it into the night sky. You can see how they were portrayed as this powerful people. Ruth Fisher even called them demigods. But the bigger they are, the harder they fall and soon the Batrezi began to experience a great deal of misfortune and eventually had to leave. When your tradition says that one of the reasons for this was because the people had lost respect for them. Their servants were talking out of the sides of their mouths, some were even outright disrespectful to their faces. Yakutura also mentions that their powers had stopped working. This was further exacerbated by the raid such as the one that Kagoro had to fight off. And there were also these black supernatural creatures that would appear and drive off the cattle of the Gatresi from rivers. But most importantly, it wouldn't be complete without a prophecy. It said the two diviners from northern Uganda came to the court of King Wamara. Using the power of haruspicy, which is the act of divining using the entrails of animals, they were able to determine the meaning of these misfortunes. However, the calf they killed was empty. They then decided to open up the cow's head, and there they found the intestines. But that's not all. The cow's legs were cut open, and in them they found the contents of the stomach. This was undoubtedly strange. King Wamara of the Patrezi was concerned. Explain this, he asked. But the diviners weren't too keen to divulge anything and gave all sorts of vague answers, terrified of the reaction of the Patrezi. Wamara let them go but then called them back in the next morning, and they appeared before him and his fellow patresi without the king's own diviners. Again, a cow was cut, and it was empty. But this time, the blood sprouted out in all different directions. And when they found the entrails in the head and the legs, a black smoke oozed out and settled on the intestines. They couldn't move the soot no matter how many times they tried to wash it off. After this, the diviners could no longer afford to keep silent. The intestines in the cow's legs were a sign that it was time for the Vatrezi to leave. The blood sprouting out in all directions? That was to show them where to go next. The black smoke was a sign that the empire would be taken over by a man of a darker complexion. This caused the Batrezi so much anxiety. Some of them found it so hard to believe that they started to blame the diviners for their own misfortunes. They even started talking about killing them. And the king's diviners agreed. This was of course because they were jealous. Wamara had begun to leave them out of meetings that concerned them, they were afraid that they were going to be replaced. The decision was then made to test the powers of these diviners. So they put a bead in a cow's head and brought said cow to be used by these strange diviners. The idea was that if they could guess that there was a bead in the cow, that meant that their powers worked and they were telling the truth. However, one of the servants of the king's doctors had become friends with them and gave them the heads up. The diviners were fully prepared and thus crushed this test. This of course angered the king's diviners, and they decided to set fire to the house that the foreigners were staying in. Thankfully, someone else came to warn them and they escaped in the dead of the night. Mara tried desperately to find them, but he failed. And it soon became painfully obvious that they had to leave. But before they left, Chomya, Nahura's son and father to Kagoro, sent for his son Vukidi, who was in northern Uganda at the time. And tradition tells us that he was to become the first king of the third dynasty. When the Petrezi left, the people had all kinds of theories about what happened. The two main ones, according to John Yakutura, were they were believed to have drowned themselves in Lake Muitanzige, which is today known as Lake Albert. The other theory is that they continued on south to places beyond. In this episode, I focused on the Vanyoro court edition version of the Vanyoro saga, as told by John Yagatura. I wanted everyone to get an understanding of how the Vatresi were seen by the Vanyoro. So in the next episode, I'm going to talk about what historians have to say about them. We'll go as in-depth as we can with the information currently available. And in doing so, we can also answer the question of who exactly were these mysterious figures? So with that said, thank you for listening, and tune in next time as we learn more about those who came before us.